race, racism, and righteousness. Race, racism, and righteousness. Last week, we started in the first part of the series. We talked about it's all about the blood. Because here's what the Lord has said. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. From one blood. We all came from the same blood, the blood of Adam. Regardless of the tone of our skin, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our race, we all have come from Adam and from Eve. And so therefore, God's design is that we would be one, not just come from the same seed. Yet at the same token, we understand that we were created in the image and the likeness of God. Secondly, we were created to become reflections of his glory. The reason why God created us in his image and his likeness and he created us in the first place, period, is so that we'll be reflectors of his glory, of his of his honor. And yet at the same token, what has happened is man has turned his back against God. And the scripture says, we looked at it last week, we have turned each one to ourselves. And that is the root of racism. Is when we turn to ourselves away from God and become, instead of becoming reflectors of God's glory, we become projectors of our own glory. And oftentimes, if it's not just our individual glory, if you will, the glory of man, it becomes the supremacy that belongs to God. We now make our race or our ethnicity or our skin tone the supreme. And so therefore, that becomes Lord over other people who are not like us. And so the bottom line is racism is not about skin. It's about sin. It's not skin deep. It's sin deep. And so therefore, the only one who can really deal with the subject of racism is not social programs. And the Lord knows we need social justice because of social injustice for equality. But laws are only designed to regulate man's behavior and help man to understand there's consequences for misbehaving. And it's also, if you will, the law of God to point out just how sinful we are, which drives us to the foot of the cross that we might receive God's grace and mercy. So because races and racism is not about skin and it's about sin, the only one who can truly deal with this issue of race is God because he's the only one who can deal with sin. Nothing you and I can do about our own sin issue. Only God can do it. And so last week, again, we talked about it's all about the blood. Today, I decided I need to go deeper. You have to put the waiters on for this. And I understand this is more highly sensitive than anything I've ever preached on before. I know that's a strong statement. And I've preached thousands of sermons over the last 30 something years. But I want us to go deep because oftentimes you have to deal with truth. But we have to deal with that truth in love. So let me start off in this place. It's not a disclaimer, but it is a statement of purpose. Body of Christ Church exists to introduce all people, regardless of sex, race or culture, to a personal and dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again because that is our statement of purpose. That is why we exist. Body of Christ Church exists to introduce all people, regardless of sex, race, or culture, 
to a personal and dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And so therefore, since 1999, 1991, since we started, we have been intentional, need to be even more intentional about introducing all people, especially those that represent our community to Christ Jesus and embrace all people, regardless, again, of the color of their skin. Now, with that, we understand that there are some ills in our society in some particulars that we have to deal with because ultimately God has called me and preachers in this office have called us to the office of preaching the truth. And when we preach truth, sometimes truth touch sensitive areas in our lives. You can't come to church all the time and, and, and have your ego boosted. And neither can I as the preacher leave every Sunday feeling like that. That was a shouting message right there. I'm going to let you know today, today is not a shouting message. But I pray that you leave here and you shout it from the rooftop. And so today I want to talk in particular about not only race, racism and righteousness, but more particularly the subject matter. There must be a meeting at Cornelius's house. If we're going to deal with the issue of racism, we really don't need to start with the government. <laughs> we don't need to start with a social program. We need to start with the church. God has left the church in the earth. He spares the church, its existence in the earth every single day because there's yet a mission for the church to accomplish that we have not accomplished. And I believe that the most troubling times is the greatest opportunity for the church to shine, for the people of God to live out the mission and purpose of God. And so whenever the economy falls apart, whatever it might be, uh, whenever there's race issues, wherever there's tension, whatever it might be, it's the perfect time for the people of God, the bride of Christ, to live out the life of Jesus Christ in the earth. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, I want to read a few verses and read several verses as we move along. But I really want to open up this, this sensitive issue of dealing with race and our particular racial issues in America. And how it has created such a divide between, in particular, black and white or white and people of color. Acts chapter 10, whenever you hear me get loud, it's my passion. I ain't mad, y'all. Beginning at verse 1. There was a certain man, Dr. Luke wrote, in Caesarea called Cornelius. With a name like Cornelius, you know he's got to be a brother. Luke would have us to know that he was a centurion, which means in our term that he was captain over a regiment or in the Roman uh, uh, military that he was in charge of 60 to 100 other soldiers but he was entire he was in in charge of the Italian regiment he was a devout devout man a religious man one who feared God and all of his household in other words he was not a Christian neither was he a Jew he was a Gentile neither had he converted to Judaism as a proselyte but he is a, what is entitled a God-fearer. He feared God. Know that there's a supreme being exists, but he has not been set to a religious grid yet. 
not only him, but all of his household. And he gave alms generously to the people. He gave to the poor and he prayed to God always. In the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Oftentimes we read in the Bible about angels making their appearance to folks showing up in their bedroom and living room. And we almost think that that's just natural. Never says anywhere in any other text that Cornelius was used to angels just popping up talking to him. But he recognized it was an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God. So what did the angel of the Lord say to Cornelius? Look at the verse. Your prayers have come up before the Lord. Your prayers have been heard before God. What was it that he was no doubt praying about? We find out later in the narrative that he was a seeker seeking salvation. Understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ had not gone beyond the boundaries of, uh, of uh, the Jewish people and spread in part to some of, of Samaria, to the Samaritans, but it had not gone into predominantly Jewish territory. Now listen to this. Now listen to the angel of the Lord's instruction to Cornelius. Verse 5. He said to him, now send me into Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in, in, with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent him to Joppa. Meanwhile, angel speaking to Cornelius, he sends messengers for Peter. He does not know Peter. They go looking at Joppa at Simon and Tanner's house for Peter. Meanwhile, what is Peter doing? Not knowing that God has sent an angel to Cornelius' house. Well, look at the text, verse 9. The next day as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. <clears throat> but while they, were, they made ready, they were getting the food ready, he fell into some kind of trance, Luke says. And he saw heaven open up and an object like a great sheep bound at four corners, descending to him and let down <clears throat> to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Look at verse 13 carefully. And a voice came to him. Now, this is no ordinary voice. And Peter recognized just whose voice it is. Listen, a voice came to him and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And verse 14 says, but Peter said, not so, Lord. There's <laughs> one thing when you hear a voice and don't know who it is. And then you say, I'm not going to do it. But when you know that it's the Lord, don't act like y'all ain't never heard a sermon and God says do something and you say it in reply, but I'm not going to do it. Not so, Lord. First of all, it's contradictory to call him Lord, which means master, then tell him what you're not going to do. Then he tried to give God his righteous credentials. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Sometimes it's not what we put in our mouths, but what comes out of our mouths that defiles us the most. In other words, I have a clean record with dietary restrictions, and that's what's making me righteous. But at the same token, what's spewing out of his mouth is what is the evidence that he's filthy in his heart. 
And a voice spoke to him again the second time. Tap your neighbor and say, sometimes we need to hear the same message twice. <clears throat> God says, when God has cleansed, you must not call common, ordinary. This was done three times because he didn't get the first and second time evidently. And the, the sheet was lowered from heaven and the object was taken into the heaven again. Meanwhile, the three messengers came to Simon the Tanner's house. They were inquiring about Peter's whereabouts. Now, Simon the Tanner means that here's a guy whose occupation was to take animal skins and then he would tan them or dye them certain colors for sale and to, to manufacture for clothing. And what you think he had tanning beds out back his house or something. Verse 19, while Peter thought about the vision, while Peter was sitting there thinking about the vision. I'm going to say that again because it's worth saying. While Peter was there thinking about the vision, when you hear the word of God, just don't holler amen. Think about what's being said. When he was thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go to them. Notice this, underline it, doubting nothing. It's one thing to hear the word of the Lord. It's another thing to obey and trust versus doubting. Because the Lord said, I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the man who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he who you, whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear his word or hear words from you. Then he invited him in and he they lodged with him. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa. You got to send your boys with you because you don't know what you're about to get into. They accompanied him. But now. Look at Peter and Cornelius meeting in Cornelius's house. Verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. <laughs> Don't do that, bro. Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am a man also. I, 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 I am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation? Peter says to these Gentiles, do you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go in to a Gentile's house? Let me let you in on something. God had never given that law. This is something that the Jews had made up. And then they signed God's name on it and made it, quote unquote, religious. But it was never holy unto God. But so but but because Peter was raised up in this, he believed that it was law, that it was unlawful for a Jew to go into a Gentile's territory and especially into his house. In other words, he was saying, do you know what a big thing I'm doing by crossing this threshold of the law? But he also said this, but God, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked 
Then for what reason have you sent me? You got to understand so many times we have read about this vision that God gives Peter about the animals coming down and telling Peter to eat these animals. And Peter is like, God forbid, because that violates Jewish dietary laws. No doubt there were pigs on this, this, this blanket. Pig in the blanket, y'all get it? Swine, shellfish, all of the things that they weren't supposed to eat. But God wasn't talking about just food. God clearly was talking about people. You know, sometimes God, most of the time, God will give us the small lessons to make a greater point later in life. Did y'all get that right now? Sometimes you hear a sermon or you're reading something, you hear it, it makes a small point today. But God sets up a scenario. Somebody say he sets it up. Where it makes a larger point later. Please embrace that thought. So Cornelius tells Peter how and what the angel of the Lord has spoken to him. And then look at verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, listen to this. In truth, in truth, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. The truth of God and the truth that he's revealed to me, Peter says, is that he is not partial towards one race of people or another race of people or one group of people or various people groups. God sees them as equal. But in every nation, whoever fears him, every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. First, let me start this place. There was a need for Peter to go to Cornelius' house and there was a need for Cornelius to invite him into his house. Let's look at what's really going on in this text. When we look at the background of the text, it's real and it's deep. There's a deep need for Peter to go to Cornelius' house. First of all, thus far, the historical timeline that we have here, the salvation of Christ, again, has only gone into Jewish territory, some parts of Samaria, and only those received Christ that had converted as a Gentile to Judaism, and they are called proselytes. Proselytes simply means you've been circumcised, you have received the rights uh, you had to jump through these, but in other words, saying you jump through these hoops of fire to become Jewish in religion. But at the same token, when it comes to worship, the Gentiles worship in one outer court and the Jews worship in the other. Segregation before God because of the color of your skin or your ethnicity. And look at what happened. God wants to extend the grounds and cross boundaries to take the gospel into Gentile territory, but in order to do that, he's got to first remove a wall. It's a wall of racism. Because we got to understand the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no, no, no platform of religious or ethnic heritage that one has to practice, that one must climb in order to qualify for God's righteousness and grace. In God's economy, there's no religio-ethnic uh, or cultural condition that must be met to qualify for God's salvation and blessings. But interesting enough, in order for God to take the gospel and his grace across cultural and racial boundaries, he would do it through a man that has racism in his heart and doesn't even know it. Isn't that amazing? God oftentimes use people who are struggling with drug addictions to minister to those who are struggling with drug addictions. 
Isn't that amazing? God will oftentimes use people who are not truthful and somewhat deceitful to minister to those who are not truthful and somewhat deceitful. In other words, the people that God uses don't meet the qualifications of God. God makes the, the man or the person through his qualifications to do his work. This is the same man, Peter, that Jesus says, upon my rock, I'll build my church. Matthew 16. And it's the same man that got prejudice in his heart. This is the same man that Jesus says, Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to use you to let folk into the kingdom. And yet he doesn't want to go into certain territories and associate with certain people because he's a racist. Let's understand, first of all, that he's got sound theology. Let's understand, first of all, he's a qualified apostle. He ain't just no pastor. He ain't just a bishop. He's not just a denominational leader. He has seen Christ face to face, has spent three and a half years with him, ate and slept with him, and received keys to the kingdom. The stuff that's been revealed to Peter that hasn't been revealed to anyone else. Who do men say that I the son of man am? And Peter says, you are the son of the most high God. And Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You got that straight from God. Something special about you, boy. Here's what I'm trying to say is just because you got proper theology. And just because you're in a good church don't mean that you're not racist. <clears throat> if we go back and look in the previous chapter of chapter 9, can I take my time with this? You get the golden crowd in before the Baptists and the Pentecostals, hold on. In chapter 9, the previous chapter, we see that <clears throat> Peter, once he left the Jewish territory, he goes through Galilee and the text says, and many believed. And then he goes to the west, Galilee, northwest, and, and there he performed miracle. And there was a woman who had been, a man who had been paralyzed for eight years, and Peter says, rise and get up, just like Jesus, and God working in him, the man was able to walk. He'd been paralyzed for eight years. But then he goes down to Joppa, and there's a woman by the name of Dorcas. Dorcas, you know, she got to be a sister. And she had literally died. Peter went up in the room. They had her laying in the bed and prepared her body for burial. And God used Peter to raise her from the dead. But Joppa is the hood. Here's, I'm making a point. Stay with me. Isn't it interesting that Peter was willing to go to the hood to perform a miracle? He was there to preach the gospel. But he wasn't willing to go into the house of somebody who lived in the hood to have dinner. Oftentimes, highly sensitive, understand this, highly sensitive. And I'm saying it because we need to address it. Oftentimes, what we find is my white brothers from the conservative evangelical circles and seminaries want to send out white folk all around the world to minister to people of color. We want to preach the gospel. But the question is not are you willing to go around the world with white skin and preach the gospel as an evangelical. 
But while you're in America, would you join a predominantly black church? And will you serve under black leadership? Sometimes we have to question the motives. And for me, who've been in even predominantly white evangelical circles, where I got most of my education, that's where I got most of my learning, a lot of my fellowship, that's where it's even more so there than it is in the black community. And it raises flags to me when I hear about all the progress that you're making in Africa and India and everywhere else. And you won't have dinner with a black person. It's great. It's great to 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 go not only preach the gospel around the world to black folk, but when you preach and you say God doesn't see color. Let me ask you, do you see color? Because if you preach God doesn't see color, I need to ask my white brother. So if your white daughter decides that she wants to date and marry a black man, I ain't talking about an African. Because black Africans are put in a different category than African-American men. But if your white daughter decides that she wants to marry an African-American, Mr. I don't see color, you cool with that? And that goes both ways, because y'all know how we is at the family reunion. You know what I'm talking about? When Lester rolls up with the white girl, Judy from around the block. And grandma say, oh, no, he didn't. And the sisters get offended because like a good black man, educated, doing good for himself, ain't got a prison record, ain't got no kids out here, ain't never been married before. And he going to go out and get a white woman. Oh, it ain't just the white folk. Our sermon is next week. Y'all better hope God spares my life. The question is to my white brothers and constituents in the conservative evangelical circles who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you preached a sermon on racism to your white members? I'm not talking about to make mention that God loves everybody, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. I'm not worried about God's sight. I'm talking about your sight. I'm talking about the, the church folk in your congregation. What about their sight? What about their gaze? What about their perspective? So, back to the text. Peter. <clears throat> so, Cornelius, a Gentile... He's been seeking the Lord. God sovereignly arranges this meeting to Peter. A man with racial issues goes to Cornelius' house, not only to preach the word, but to break some bread and have fellowship. In other words, Peter had a I must needs go to Cornelius' house. Last week we talked about the King James translation of Jesus in John 4 saying I must needs go through Samaria. I can't go around Samaria, the people or the issue. I got to go through it because if there's going to be any healing, if there's going to be true reconcil reconciliation, we got to go through Samaria. We got to go to Cornelius's house. White folk need to go to Cornelius's house and Cornelius needs to invite white folk into his house. As long as we're over here and they're over there and we don't cross that bridge to meet each other, They'll never be in the healing. And you can talk about Jesus and God and love all day long. 
But one of the greater questions I have is, is this. If God sent an angel down to give a message to Cornelius, why didn't he send the angel down to just preach the gospel to Cornelius? Why did he have to take this step and this layer that I send the messenger down, an angel who gives the message of the Lord to Cornelius to send service to go get Peter to come to his house to preach to God? Why didn't he just let the angels preach it? Two reasons I have, my two cents what it's worth. Number one, it's because God has chosen to use frail, fallen human beings who are in need of redemption and have experienced God's glorious redemption through his son, on uh, Jesus Christ, down on Calvary's cross for our sin is because when we have realized we have sinners and we have been forgiving of our sins, it makes us at that point qualified to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Angels cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus did not die for angels. He died for fallen humanity. The word of God says, how can they hear except they have a preacher, not an angel? And how can he preach except he be sent? That's reason number one. Reason number two is because oftentimes God, yes, wants the seeker to know him. And they know him through the gospel. <clears throat> but God uses the preacher oftentimes to deal with the preacher's sin in preparing and delivering the message. In other words, here's what I'm saying. God says, I'm going to use Peter as my preacher to take him somewhere that he would dare to go to deal with an issue that he didn't even know he had. <laughs> Remember what Peter said? He put it in the bounds of the law. The law says, Jewish law says, I'm not supposed to be in your house. Jewish law didn't say that. <clears throat> so what can we say about Peter? First of all, Peter didn't start racism. He didn't start separatism. But he was raised in a racist and separatist community. He was raised up in it. He became a participant by default. All of us have. We're byproducts of our community in which we were raised. Listen, I can stand here on one hand and say I don't have a racist bone in my body. But then sometimes I see that racism springing up. See, I, you ask my mom and daddy and my uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody else come over to the house. In my community, they sit around. When I was growing up as a kid, oh, my mom, a great member. She's on pastor's aid, missionary Baptist church. You ask my mom, are you prejudiced? I'm, Lord knows I'm not prejudiced. I'm just saying you can't trust white folk. <laughs> and you want to say, I guarantee you, mama, that it wasn't a white man that broke out our bathroom window and stole our TV in the middle of the night. Guarantee that was Pookie from up the block. Where do we, it's ingrained in us. We are all products of our community. Peter is a product of his Jewish community. Where they probably didn't say to him, dislike Gentiles or people who are not Jews. 
But because he had heard and was raised, we don't go over there. We stay on this side of the track. We don't associate with those people. Well, why not, mom? Because the law says so. Oh, okay. But who made the law that wasn't the law? The people did. Here's the reason why. If you make a law, then you don't have to examine the person's heart. Because the law says so, and therefore I'm acquitted of anything that might spring out of my heart. So he was a separatist and a racist by default because he was a participant in his community. Here's, here's what I want to say on a, on a personal level. The majority, let me, let me speak from my black side for a minute, okay? All right, but I'm going to speak from my black side, but on a biblical basis and address my white side. I can do that. You can't do that. All right, okay? So you, if anybody ought to be mad at me, it ought to be me. Because I got two people in the same body. But the majority of Americans, especially white Americans in particular, are racist by default. Simply because, like Peter, you've been raised in a community with a corporate system that is at its very foundation is racist. It was racist before you were born. It was racist before you entered into this world. My wife, but the thing is, my white brothers and sisters don't realize that. It's hard to realize that. We can't necessarily expect them to realize the particulars and the realities of that. So let's transition from Peter of the Bible to Peter up the street. <laughs> when we talk about co corporate and uh, systemic racism or evil, sociologist Nikki Lisa Cole, PhD, she says this about systemic racism, and I quote, Systemic racism is both a theoretical concept, she says, and a reality. A theory, she says, it is premised on the research supported claim that the United States was founded as a racist society, which is true. That racism is thus embedded in all social institutions, structures, and social relations within our society. Rooted in racist foundation, systematic racism today is composed of intersecting, she says, overlapping and codependent racist institutions, policies, practices, ideas, and behaviors that give an unjust amount of resources, rights, and power to white people while denying them to people of color. As a result of being born into a system of racism, she says, and if you are the, 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 uh, the, in the majority of that set, you are in a system that you benefit from your community as a result of that system. So, <clears throat> sparked my thought about white privilege. I don't think, again, my white brothers and sisters are, they realize how privileged they are. And when you get on this stuff, you say, well, I had to pay taxes like everybody. I got my struggles like everybody else. But all of our struggles are different, even if you're the same of the same ethnicity. But because we have been divided and because of Jim Crow laws and a whole lot of other things, go back to the root of racism in Genesis, because we have been divided in these communities that our challenges are different. They look different. They feel different. They sound different. Let me give you, it might, might seem like nothing, but let me talk about white privilege. And it may be, seem in a minor sense. But if you're a student in school and you cut your finger in the classroom and you go down to the nurse's office and that nurse hand you a Band-Aid and you are a student of color, I guarantee you that Band-Aid ain't going to match your skin tone. 
Here's the reason why. The Band-Aid was designed by white people for white people with white people in mind. Because you could have very easily made, I know they got translucent or transparent Band-Aids now, but I don't think that was because of color. I just think some people don't like it no matter what color. But here's what I'm saying. There's an automatic or there's a given in a majority sector in society or community where people do things without necessarily thinking about it. And then some things are very intentional. They could have very well designed the Band-Aid, listen, just thinking that the majority of people in America are Caucasian, of light complexion. So this will fit them well. Y'all looking at me like, that don't make sense. Maybe this will make sense. You go to a hotel, African-American, black man or sister, and you walk in the bathroom, and you're like, man, I need to wash my, my hair. What you're going to see in the little tubes is not going to be a Dudley product or a Mazzani product. It's going to be some suave, some suave, some... Y- y'all got what... <laughs> It ain't for our hair. Am I right about it? It's because it wasn't designed with us in mind. It was designed by white folk with white folk in mind because white are the majority. So there is a white privilege that is given for you simply being white. When we sit in the hotel room and get ashy and we go to the bathroom, that little cucumber fragrance thin stuff ain't got no... We're going to go downstairs to the front desk and ask if they got some shea butter. (laughs) Some what? Shea butter. And then if the person behind the desk happens to be white, we'll probably even think not only what is that, but what would give them the audacity to ask us for a black product? We don't carry black products. Why is our hair care products in the grocery stores and at the drugstore in an ethnic section. Why you can't put Mexican rice on the shelf right next to rice-a-roni? So it helps them find it better. No, what it does is it puts them all in that one aisle. Separatism. You say, well, they didn't mean it that way. That's exactly what I'm talking about. They probably don't mean it that way. It happens, but there's got to be communication of how this makes other folk feel. And especially when you're not that folk. (laughs) The white perspective towards black, and I'm not speaking about every, but I guarantee I'm talking about the majority in America. You had a social function and you see a Black man, six foot two, well built, well dressed. He gets to talking about he graduated from an Ivy League school or predominantly white elite college. And white folks start thinking, oh my God, oh, what sport did you play? Well, because I'm six two and I'm well built, and I went to a prestigious university that's predominantly white, I had to have gotten there on an athletic scholarship. I could have got there on my brains like everybody else. <laughs> if you hold a position of power, significance, or authority on your job, management, white folk will look at a black person and go and ask you, how did you get here and who is it that you know? 
like they didn't know somebody. <laughs> you see, whites are born, most whites are in America are born in environments where when it's not necessarily taught verbatim, but it's taught by way of example, that white people are smarter than black people. And they understand or they think that there are a few smart black people, but not the majority of us. Shoot. Even black folk begin to believe that. White people are smarter than black folk. You, you think I'm joking? Be hospitalized and the surgeon walks in your room and his name is Ralph Wallace. He said, I'm, I'm going to be your surgeon for today. You'd be like, oh, Lord. I mean, I, I can't get a white man to cut my heart open. What's going on here? We got to ask all kinds of questions. Like, what school did you go to? Well, I graduated from Harvard Medical School. Did you play football? Now we asking the questions. Can I at least get an Asian man up here, somebody? Got my heart in your hands. I don't know where this brother is from or this sister. Because we have been conditioned to think that white is right or that is better. And you say, well, that, listen, that, those days are over. No, 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 no. It was just yesterday, even in athletics, <laughs> where a black man could not be a quarterback. You can hand him the ball and tell him to run through that hole and, and boy, just keep running and running and running. You run for your life. But I'm not going to give you the position of a quarterback because that is a thinking man's role. And black people are not thinkers. They were made and they were bred for muscle and for speed. So you can't be a quarterback. You can't be a pitcher. You can't be a manager on a baseball team or a coach in football and basketball. Those are thinking positions and those are leadership and powerful decision-making positions, and you are not equipped to do that. So, maybe I need to give some biblical examples of systemic racism and what happens in community, whether it is for the benefit of the participants in the community or the ill effect of those simply because they're in the community. Because, again, we are not only just products of our own choices, but we are products of the choices that our families have participated in. And we simply have been born in it and raised in it, and we live in it. And yet there is corporate responsibility within family. Some of you remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, I, I, I want to just read a couple of verses, starting with verse 24. But if you remember the story, and I won't go through all the details and particulars, but God sends Achan out and his soldiers, and they take over the enemy of God, and God says specifically to Achan, listen to me carefully, all right, you, you can wipe the folk out, they're my enemies, but don't take any of the spoil, don't take any of their goods, don't take any of their wealth, don't take any riches, don't take any souvenirs. Here's what he's saying, don't bring nothing back that would give you privilege or benefit. Just do what I told you to do. And that ain't what Achan did. He went out, fulfilled the first half of the mission, but then he, started, he brought back gold and precious stones, 
buried them in the backyard. And listen what happened. Joshua 7.24. And Joshua, the preacher, and all Israel with them took Achan, the son of Zerach, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, listen, and his sons and his daughters. Now I need to let you know, his sons and daughters didn't have anything directly to do with it. They didn't go to battle. But they gathered them up with the daddy. And his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and brought them into the valley of Achor. Look at verse 25. And Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? Why have you troubled the community? Your decision. We didn't do this. You did it. Why have you troubled the community? You've taken advantage of someone else and now you're benefiting from their resources. And that ain't what God told you to do. He said, why have you troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. Listen, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. But notice, and burn them with fire. That's his children. After they had stoned them with stones. Now, when we listen to that, that just don't even seem right. It seems like God is unfair. But here's what God knows that we need to know. The kids knew what the daddy was doing. But they wouldn't speak against it. They knew what the dad no doubt had. But nobody stood up. Nobody went to Joshua and said, I need to let you in and you ain't here from me. But my dad has got something that doesn't belong to him. Buried it in the backyard. No, they, they, they like the dope dealer's son. Mama keep getting minks. She's getting a new car. But she don't want to ask what kind of job you got. Where you work at. She's just going to turn her head, enjoy the benefits of living in a nice house in a nice neighborhood and pray for her son that nothing happens to him while he's out there slinging drugs. I ain't saying you got to turn your kids in, but I'm turning mine in tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. <laughs> Y'all got to go. Got to go see the man. Y'all get it? The kids hadn't done anything directly wrong. But because they enjoyed the benefits of it, because they didn't take responsibility for it, they suffered the consequences of it. Y'all know I'm trying to make a point, right? Maybe we need not only a New Testament example, but maybe we need a broader example that shows the effects of how someone else could do wrong and yet the people in the community not only feel the effects of it but suffer the effects of it. Then on the other hand, how somebody can do right and we weren't personally involved in the wrong or the right but we received the blessing simply because we're in the community of the one who did the right. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this clear about our salvation as well as our sin. Romans 5 and 12, he says this, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world. Because Adam's sin 
Sin entered into the world, and not only that, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because of sin. And we can holler all day long, that ain't right. The reality is I wasn't there with Adam when he sinned. I didn't even know Adam. And I wasn't the one who sinned, it was Adam. But because of Adam's sin, Adam's sin spread to all of us, which makes all of us sinners, and yes, we do sin. And yet at the same token, we suffer the consequences of Adam's decision. God said to Adam, today you sin, you will surely die. And death has entered into all of us. All of us got to go. And all of us are separated, spiritual death, from God because of this man's decision. Were we participants in it? No. Have we participated because of it? Yes. How? Simply because we're in that community. Now the flip side of that is in verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, that's that's the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. (laughs) Y'all ain't getting this right here. It's the doctrine of substitution where Christ died for all of us. He is the one who performed the act. But when we enter into his community, we benefit from what he's done. It's not what we've done for ourselves. You got it? So through one man or one group's decision, if you're in that community, somehow or another, you become not only a participant of it, but you feel either the ill effects of it and or the blessings of it. And it doesn't have to be your personal decision. Some people's guilt can, can, uh, can bring a whole, make a whole community guilty, and then some people's good can, can bless an entire community. We're, we're, again, we're responsible, if you will, for Adam and Eve's sin, and we weren't the ones who committed the first sin. I'm sure I would have messed it up later, but, yeah, but I wasn't the one. So when it comes to race, We're not only byproducts of our community, but we also share in the benefits, the blessings of it. But we also we also share in the curse of it as well. Now, I'm start. I got to turn the corner because I got to talk about how how does all this change? It doesn't change on a corporate level. It changes with individual responsibility. Somebody said individual responsibility. Uh, Understand clearly that nothing changes. by each person sitting around and waiting for the community to change the system. The reality when it comes to racism, I don't believe the racist system will ever change. It's because it is satanic in its nature and origin. And so down here, it's never going to change. The system ain't going to change. And within the community, we can bring about change, but it has to take place with each individual. Even when you talk about the church and the work that God has called the church to do, The church is never going to do that work. The church is never going to do that work until each individual pick up their own responsibility and go to work and stop waiting on somebody else or the church as a whole to get on board with the program. Tap your neighbor and say it begins with me. Here's a wonderful biblical example in Daniel chapter 9 of 
individual responsibility. Daniel is coming to the Lord and repenting of sins that he did not necessarily commit and the origin of their sins didn't start with him. But he is confessing the sins and seeking forgiveness and mercy from God for the sins that his forefathers committed. And yet they feel the effects of the sins of the forefathers. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and verses 8 and 11. Y'all still with me? Daniel says, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. <laughs> to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princess. Notice he said the government officials. That's, that's a modern way of saying it. And our fathers, our forefathers. Shame has come upon us because of our government officials of the past and our forefathers. Because now he makes it personal and present because we have sinned against you. In other words, it started with our forefathers and because we were born in that community and the people have been influenced by their values. Now we have turned our backs against you, but it started with them. To the Lord, verse 9, our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophet. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your laws and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse, somebody say the curse. The curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. Because we have sinned against him or the Lord. Look at verse 16, the first part. Oh, Lord, according to your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and fury be turned away. Notice this from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mount. In other words, modern translation of this. Lord, please forgive the church. Please forgive the people that say that they know you and have a relationship with you because of our sins. And listen. And for the iniquities, well, my father said the iniquities, the iniquities of our fathers. Daniel could easily say, like Aiken's kids, but I did not commit this sin. I did not, I'm not the one who turned my back against God. It was our forefathers and it was our government. But he's saying, as a result of it, I'm repenting. And as a result of it, We've adopted their ways, but it started with them. And here's the reality. Israel had turned their back against God and didn't even realize it. And one man steps up and takes responsibility for what a community before him has done. And the community that he resides in now feels the effects of it. Look at what he says, verse 13 and 14. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet... Yet, notice, notice, all this has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayers before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. When we talk about racism, it's one thing to talk about what the forefathers of the past have done, but understand that not only do whites benefit from the decisions of the forefathers of the past in community, born in that community, but also suffer, if you will, the wrath of God as a result of it. 
This is what this is what, what Daniel says. Turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Turn us from we because we need to start. Start with this generation. Black pastors, white pastors, we all gotta come to the pulpit, and this is the message that we gotta preach. See, again, Daniel realized it's got to start somewhere. Let it start with me, O oh Lord. What Daniel was saying is, I was involved in slavery. Never owned slaves. But my forefathers did. And years later and centuries later, I was born into that environment. And I share in the benefit modern day of being white and so when we look at this we understand that everybody participates in community at some level and so therefore everybody's got a responsibility Tim Keller does a great job of, of talking about how systems operate and, and things that are, they get done through systems it's what we call systematic evil or systematic in this case racism in some way or another, again, everybody participates in that system, black, white, whatever. But in your community, you have a system. In that system, we participate in some way. And he gives four, level of our, four levels of our participation. Level number one, he says, is those who participate in the community, in that system, and they participate in what goes on in that system. They're an active participant, and they're happy in doing it. They're glad about it. The second level of participation is you're in that community and you sort of know what goes on in the system, but you don't give much thought to it. The third level of participation, he says, is that you know what's happening, but you don't do anything to stop it. And the third level of participation is you're in it, you're benefiting from it, but you're sort of oblivious to the particulars of it. And he gives this example of Holocaust, where millions of Jews and others were executed, taken from their homes and families, and they were murdered. He uses those same levels, and he's talking about there were those on the first level who were not only participants of it, Hitler and others, that were leaders of it, participated of it, and enjoyed doing it, happy about it. Then the second level is those, for instance, who were guards and soldiers, guards at concentration camps, and they were given orders to kill people or to capture people and put them in concentration camps. So they were obeying the orders. And when we go back and look, there are many history books that are written now that when the war was over and everything else, a lot of these guards that were working in concentration camps, they were just following orders, but many of them taking their own lives. Because they couldn't live with what they had done, although they were given orders to do it, but it wasn't in their heart to do it. They certainly didn't stand up to stop it. But then there's that second level where you're not making decisions, but you're following orders and you're going along with the program because you don't want to go against the grain because it will cost you too much. In other words, you're in the back room when decisions are being made and when application come across, application come across and the resume comes across and, and, and it's got Shaquiqua Brown on the top and you say, no, nah, we don't want to bring her in. There's not much discussion about it, but you know why. 
but you don't say anything about it and say, well, I don't think that's right. I think we ought to at least consider this person's credentials and give them an interview to see if they're qualified for the position and not judge them by their name or what we presume might be the color of their skin. Giving orders to do it, going along with the system. Third level he gives with, with Nazism is, is, is that you were a citizen in the town or, and you, or even a government official for that matter and you knew what was going on but you didn't think too much about it and you certainly didn't get involved in it. It didn't concern you. And then fourthly, with those, especially who lived in the more remote areas and didn't get the details of what was going on, so they had no idea what the Holocaust was all about and all these concentration camps. But the same thing happens in systemic society where we can see, it doesn't have to be racism, you could, you could be a child in school, a student, and you know that there's certain things going on within a group, whether there's bullying or whatever it might be. And you may have some idea of it. And because, listen, you don't investigate and say or do anything about it. Or you might be a participant in it at the top level and saying, we're going to get this guy. We're going to make his life miserable and you're happy about it. Or you might be, listen, scared yourself. So you're just going along with the orders. But somehow or another, we're involved in it. Then there are those on the bottom who don't, don't care to know. Ain't got nothing to do with me. So therefore, it's difficult for white folk to understand the plight of people of color in, in America. And that's the reason why a lot of white people will say, but, but slavery is in the past. Now, I, I don't, I've never owned any slaves and I'm not racist. But, but again, we've got to understand that whites are part of a community like Achan and like Daniel. And what Paul addressed about in, in Romans about sin is, as well as the benefits of righteousness through Christ. And that we all have a corporate responsibility that we are now associated with it with because of what has happened in the past. You can't just tell a black man, I use man, but it's just easier so I can move through this. But you just can't tell a black man that was then and this is now. No, 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 no. For us, it's still now. It, it takes place every single day. Even in the church, you can preach good theology and you can talk about holding hands and, and, and singing kumbaya together. But you cannot tell black folk who are held captive and you're marching in the slave ship that God loves you and he's got a great purpose for your life. That's contradictory. You, you, you can't. And I've stood in, in El Menia and Cape Coast and the slave castles in West Africa. And I've stood there on level ground, <clears throat> ground level. And I've looked at the Anglican church standing on this ground. <laughs> and underneath that church where they were having Bible studies and services and, and they were witnessing to black Africans and sharing Jesus Christ. And right underneath their feet, there were hundreds of slaves in dungeons. It's contradictory. So... When we talk about Christianity and from the white perspective and then we talk about Jim Crow laws. You can't say that God loves everybody. And then in your church, you institute bylaws 
to say that black folk can't come into your, your church or sanctuary. And the reason being is written in the bylaws is because they have ulterior political motives. And they haven't come for the right purpose, and that is of worship. And during the civil rights struggle, many of the white, predominantly white churches instituted those very words into their bylaws. And if you were black and came into church, they would hand you a card. And the reason why they wouldn't let you in the church, they said, is because you have ulterior political motives. Now, because of civil rights, you want to come into this church or you want to sit at the lunch counter to prove a point that you can legally. Now, I, I've been pastoring church for a long time. And I got to be honest with you, back then and even today, when y'all came through these doors, I have no idea of what's in your heart. I have no idea what your motives are. And the truth about it is you don't know what my motives are either. Am I right about it? So how in the world does some other folk know the motives of some folk trying to get into the church? Presbyterian pastor, friend of mine, black man, wrote a book years ago called Last Pew on the Left. It was his parents' experience and what he grew up in. In other words, when, in the, 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 when segregation was, it, it, you say it's separate, but it's still not over, but, but, but segregation or integration had taken place. And so therefore, believe it or not, when integration had taken place, the church of all places was the last place to integrate. Because we could, under the banner of religious rights, come up with our own bylaws to say these people cannot come into this place. And, and so let me say this. It's black folk understand the struggle because we, we are minorities living in a majority world. Community of whites. We know what it's like to be the minority. When you go to work tomorrow, not unless you work at Angie's hair salon, but when you go to work tomorrow, Chances are you going in as a minority in a predominantly white community. Am I right about it? You go to the grocery store, you go to the ball game, you go to the movie theater. So we know what it's like to be a minority walking into a predominantly white world. So even when it comes to church, we have less of a problem as African-Americans going to a predominantly white church than whites do coming to a predominantly African-American church. Here's the reason why. We're used to it. I've taken some of my white brothers and sisters to Africa with me. It takes about two or three days before I ask the question. But you can see it. They didn't know it before going. You feel overwhelmed because you have never been engulfed with so much blackness. Not that anybody treated you different or differently or anything else. But when you have been the majority and you are now the absolute minority, you can't find anybody this way. They, you know they call me a Bruni. That means white man. Look, kids on the road. A Bruni! I say, hey, buddy, how you doing? I don't have to prove that I'm black or that I'm African-American. All that kind of, no, 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 no. You just accept it for who you are. So when we talk about White people saying that slavery is over, and that was 250 years ago. Get over it. You can't get over something that has never, you have never gotten rid of. Because racism still exists. 
You can't get over something that still exists and it's in your face every day. Then white people will say, well, why is everything about color to black people? Well, let me ask you this. When white folk and Europeans and Northern Americans were going into Africa and capturing black people, you're going to tell me it wasn't about color? It was color about then. It's still about color. What about racial profiling today? It exists. It exists in employment arenas. It exists in law enforcement. It exists in the grocery store or department store when you go into a mall. White kids can go into a mall and teenagers and they're not going to be observed like a group of black kids. We didn't make it everything about color. The community and the system made it about color. <laughs> so they will never understand why we're so upset about the, the outcome of the Trayvon, Mer, uh, Trayvon Martin case. That was clear. We didn't even need video. There was tons of evidence. This man went way beyond his rights and his boundaries and was told what not to do and did it anyway. And I guarantee if it was the reverse, where a black man shot a white man, the outcome would have been totally different. And so when we watch television, we're so outraged because of injustice. And because it hits so close to home, because we have children that age, we have cousins that age and nephews that, that age, and it hits home. Eric Garner, when a, when a law enforcement officer choke a man out, that's illegal, that's illegal. Now let me tell you something. There's some foolish stuff that we're doing in law enforcement. We don't have oftentimes enough respect. I, I tell, tell our sons, listen, comply. Whatever they tell you to do, get out on the ground. I don't care what it is. Just get on the ground. Live to tell the story. We'll come home and work the details out later, right? And it, it, sometimes it's not about racism. Sometimes it's just some folk, they, they, they're a little gun-ho about their position. You could be a pastor and gun-ho about your position. When a dog, dog out and lord over people. Amen? So it's not so much about just law enforcement. But we have to admit that there is racial profiling in America. And oftentimes we're shot in the back when we run <laughs> or when we flick our elbow up to get away. And then a white guy can do the same thing and just like, okay, we'll catch him tomorrow. <laughs> that there's a reason why there's more blacks that are incarcerated over the rates of whites or we get longer sentences than most white men do. In the state of Alabama, they still don't have state-appointed legal representation. In other words, if you ain't got the money for a private lawyer, you have no representation. And you know poor people, and especially black people, we're usually on the lower end of that, so we get more time because we ain't got nobody to represent us. So Pookie sitting in court twiddling his thumbs, just waiting for a guilty verdict and going to wind up getting twice, two to three times illegal and sometimes over legal. Now, I'm going to say it again. Our sermon is next Sunday. But there is a difference in how we're looked upon. So, again, it's about race. It's about color. You can't tell me that when a white man who's in a management position tell a black man and his employee to do something and he doesn't do it or he gives them a certain look that a white man don't feel some kind of way racially. 
And you can't tell me that when a white man tell a black man uh, 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 or that white man that confronts that black man doesn't feel something go up his racial spine simply because of the color of his skin. Well, let me give you an example. I was in a hotel um, last week and um, getting on the elevator. And there was a white lady with two kids on the elevator. And the elevator door opened. She was getting ready. She took a step to get off. And then I think she realized that wasn't her floor. I'm getting ready to get in. I backed up to let her out. So therefore now I'm further from the door. She deliberately looks and closes the door. Now me, God created me this size for a reason. I risk my life and throw my body into the crack. The door almost busts my shoulder open. And I looked and I said, well, that's one way to get the elevator door to open. And so then the Jesus came all over me. I love when Jesus kicks in when I'm getting right fleshly. And so I said, how are you today? And she did not open her mouth. We only got one more floor to go down. So I'm in a hotel. I get my food, sit down at the table, breakfast. She gets her food and brings her kids over there and realizes I'm sitting at the next table and goes to another table. So then I'm thinking, she probably doesn't understand English. She's maybe from another country, and I'm making assumptions. And then when the person that was cleaning the table off and stuff said, you know, would you like to clean your table? Yes. And she says, where's the coffee? I said, oh, yeah, she speaks English. She was born here, raised here. Now, here's the reality. I have no idea if this woman is racist. But being a black man, it made me feel some kind of way. Y- y'all got what I'm saying? White people will not understand that. It make you feel some kind of way. Me and my wife was on a cruise a couple weeks ago. I talked about that. And you know, this, we are all the way at our own table, but them tables now, nah, they got them tight. They're like six inches apart. Every night, they put white folk on each side of us. And so, you know, my, my wife was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> we, we boarded in Alabama. It's like, oh, Lord. And then my wife said, you know, Katina said, um, um, you know, they, they probably looking at us and, you know, they, they think we are a biracial couple. I'm like, what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I ain't got to prove I'm black on the ship, do I? So I was like, yeah, okay, all right. I, I can accept the biracial thing. Ain't nothing wrong with that. So, but you don't want to assume that people, you know, I'm thinking, how can you sit down that close to somebody? Not only don't speak, but you don't even look that way. And I'm going to say it again. And we boarded the ship at a port in Mobile, Alabama. So there's a lot of stuff going through my head. So my, my thing that I do is, is this. It's like, hey, I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out where you're from and what you're made out of. You know how I'm going to do that? You win them with kindness. So every time somebody sit down and after about two minutes, they're not going to look your way and don't say anything. I say, hey, how are y'all doing today? Y'all enjoying your cruise? Now... If I just, a few times I got this, ask how you doing, you just nod your head, so they ain't trying to be bothered. Now, I don't know if they're racist. I'm not going to even call them racist. What I do know is this, it made me feel some kind of way. 
You, you got what I'm saying? It, it makes me feel some kind of way, especially when you can be chipper with a person of color who works on the ship. They're serving, making your bed, feeding you your food, and you can be chipper with them. Can you take my picture? Can we take a picture with you? And you will not speak to a black person sitting next to you from your own country. Now, I know black folk do the same thing sometimes. I know. But it's hard for a lot of folk understand why we're so upset about Confederate flags. Why are we so upset about wanting to take down statues of people in our eyes that represented then racism and people that come to see it and idolize it, which in some way or another still represents racism? If you don't understand it yourself, understand it on behalf of the people that it offends. I don't understand why everybody walking around with a save the whale t-shirt on and save the dog from the shelter and from, from uh, being euthanized. But we can't wear a save black folk t-shirt and that black lives matter. I can't understand why you're willing to save a black dog in the pound from being killed, but you ain't willing to save a black man in prison from being executed. You give mercy to the animal and you want justice that is not justice, injustice, injustice to a lot of black folks simply because of the color of their skin. I, I'm not done, but I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm hungry. Anybody else hungry? <laughs> One thing about it, my feet start hurting and they are. I'm starting to hurt, and I get hungry. I'm going to get an attitude in a minute, and then they're going to be passion. So let me, let me bring it to I ain't ready just yet. So you almost made the white man come out of me, George. <laughs> so, so what is the answer? What is the answer? It's right here in the Word of God, back in Acts chapter 10. Four things real quickly. Real, I'm not going to explain them. It's self-explanatory. The text says, while Peter was still speaking these words, while Peter was still speaking these words to Cornelius and his household, while Peter was still speaking these words, the word of God, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It's two things in that. If we're ever going to see, see change, it begins with the word of God. And the word of God must be preached and it must be lived out. And he says that when... They heard the word. That's not just hearing with the ear, but when they heard it in the heart, something happened. God did something. The Holy Ghost fell on them. The power, supernatural power, brought salvation to them and it changed their hearts. In order for this to change, it has to change in the black church, the white church, us being together, the Latino church, the Asian church, wherever it might be, that change must come, but it's going to come when we preach and when we embrace the truth of God's word. 
then we would see the supernatural power of God through the Holy Spirit. And then sec- thirdly, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is what baptism represented then and it represented now. It represents equality and it represents oneness. Can these people be baptized without 